Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 21. Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And you can not only hear the word of God, but follow along with your eyes, which is uh, makes it so much more profitable. And then if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home and make a good friend of it. So everybody to have a Bible. John chapter 21 Beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples, they were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they all said to him, we are, all, we are going with you also. And so they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any food? And they answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And so they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. And therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the Apostle John, he said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, his outer robe, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea to come to the shore but the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, about 100 yards, dragging the net with fish. And as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And Simon Peter went up and he dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153 and although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And then Jesus, Jesus then came and he took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise the fish, he served them. And this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we desire that our lives, bought and paid for by you, that they would be fashioned by every single passage in this Bible. And we acknowledge, Lord, that this passage that we're looking at this morning is intended to do something in eternal in each and every one of us. And, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do that eternal work in each one of us. Minister to our minds, minister to our hearts, Lord, minister to our spirits, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've walked with the Lord since 1980. It puts me at about 31 years. And sometimes I wonder to myself, what percentage of Christians remain faithful 
to God's calling upon their life, God's purposes for their life, all the way through the entirety of their Christian life. And what is the percentage of Christians that somewhere along the way retake control of their lives and return to a self-directed or a self-willed life? And our passage teaches us that the temptation to abandon God's calling and his purposes for our lives can look very appealing for the moment. But ultimately, it ends in a very spiritually empty and spiritually fruitless life. And in this passage, we have Jesus' response Not just to the disciples 2,000 years ago, but to all of his disciples who are are tempted to abandon the Christ-directed life for the self-willed life. And I don't care who any of us are. Every one of us, if the apostles could be tempted by it, every one of us will be tempted in this way sometime in the course of our Christian life. Now, the first thing that we notice in verses 1 through 5 is the spiritual fruitlessness of the self-directed life. It's a a physical fruitlessness that's happening with, with the disciples here, but it's all intended, as we'll see, to communicate something spiritual. So we see the background of the event. They're all up at the Sea of Tiberias, seven of the disciples. The Sea of Tiberias is a name, another name for the Sea of Galilee, which was up in the north. It's not really a sea in the sense that we think of it as being salt water. It's just a great uh, freshwater lake up in the north. And so the disciples have at this point in time, they've returned from Jerusalem down in the south, and they have gone to the north up into the area of the Galilee. And their departure from Jerusalem following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, to travel up north to the Galilee, that wasn't something that was self-willed on their part. That wasn't some uh, act of disobedience on their part. They went to the north under Jesus' instruction. Prior to his crucifixion, he had told them what would happen in Jerusalem, that he would be abused by the Jewish religious leaders, that he would be crucified, but he would rise again on the third day, and ultimately he would meet with them up in the Galilee. Remember, the angel of the Lord spoke to Mary at the time of Jesus' resurrection on that Sunday morning and gave her a message to carry to the disciples to go to the north where Jesus would meet with the disciples. And so following the Jesus' appearance to Thomas uh, a week after his resurre- Jesus' resurrection would have meant that both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which were co-joined, it was an, kind of an eight-day uh, long uh, religious celebration. By the time Jesus appeared to Thomas the second time, both of those Jewish feasts were completed. And now being completed, the disciples then packed up their belongings and they headed back home uh, to the Galilee region. And the Galilee region in the north was home for uh, virtually all of the disciples. 
Now, Peter, in verse three, while they're waiting for Jesus to come and to meet with him, Peter got the bright idea (laughs) and he informed everyone else of his bright idea. He said, I'm going fishing. So Peter had trouble waiting. Uh, And some people, lots of people have trouble waiting. I like to. I like to move and get things done myself. Uh, Peter even had trouble waiting for Jesus. <laughs> That's a high level of, of impatience, but I think all of us can sometimes recognize that. Sometime in our life, God seems to be much more patient than we are related to resolving some kind of a problem or a situation. So he's pretty, uh, he's, he's impatient here and uh, wasn't easy for him to wait. He wanted to do something. He is a doer. And the one thing he knew uh, how to do best was fish. And so that's what he was going to return to. And the six other disciples who were with him, they quickly invited themselves to join him on, in all of this. Now, it's very possible that something much larger and much more serious is occurring here than, uh, than just going out and going fishing. It isn't entirely unlikely that this was a decision that represented a return to their old life. We remember when Jesus called Peter and when he called James and John, who were also among this seven that were with him at that time, that their old life was as uh, fishermen. And so that's what they had done uh, by a trade. Jesus had called them now to become his disciples. And so Jesus had had declared to them, I'm going to make you now fishers of men. Now, you put yourself in Peter's place, in the place of those disciples, and they're in a really difficult time in their life. It's a very confusing time. So they're sitting here and they're waiting for Jesus to meet with them in the Galilee. They look at, in the, on the natural level, they look at things and they feel like they've, just, they've gotten out of Jerusalem by the skin of their teeth. And so they've been in the middle of very, very deep disappointment on the human level. Their expectations of what life would be, what life would become now as a follower of Jesus, those expectations have just blown up in their faces. Nothing has turned out the way that they thought things would turn out. And so here they are. They're confused Life has become very hard for them. Their life is even in danger as a result of following Jesus. And it was a life that they were in the middle of that always required faith, being stretched. Every time they turn around, they're being challenged and being tested by the next difficulty in a way that maybe someone that doesn't walk with the Lord or wasn't following the Lord would, uh, wouldn't be tested. And perhaps they just wanted to go back to a life that demanded less of them, just to fit in in life, just to enjoy a normal life, a regular life. No more faith. No more danger, no more hardship, no more dreams of being great for God, no more dreams of making a difference for God in this world. Just that it it had been three and a half years of walking with him and serving him, all of the ups, all of the downs, all of the demands, all of the great things, all of the hardship. And 
at the end of the three and a half years, now they just want to go back to the mundane of life, the daily of life, the rhythm of life, the normalcy of life. Where one, you just wake up in the morning, you go fishing, you sell the fish at the market, you provide for your family, you go home to your family, you go to bed, and you wake up and you do it all over again. There's a place that you can reach in Christian service and in the Christian life where that kind of life, as boring as it may look to somebody else, can be something that another person looks at and they literally smack their lips at going into that kind of a life, a life that's that anonymous, a life that where you are just in anybody and a nobody, just like everybody else in the world, no going against the stream of the flow spiritually and morally of this world, no more making a stand for God, no more lost relationships, no more speaking up into the middle of situations that the Spirit of God compels you to speak up, when otherwise if you were just one among a nobody among anybody's, you could keep your mouth shut. And there comes a way in life and in the Christian life where to just to disappear into that kind of life becomes very, very attractive. Now, clearly, this decision was self-directed. It wasn't a God-directed thing that they were doing here. It represents a return to the old life. If not fully, it was so close as to be dangerous to God's purposes for their lives. And so Jesus did not allow them to be successful in this decision in order to just dramatically and powerfully drive home the point that fruitfulness in a Christian's life is found in a Christ-directed life and not in a self-directed life. You see, the problem with what they're doing here is that for their lives, Jesus had called them out of a life to be spent physically fishing for physical fish to become fishers of men. All the way back in Matthew chapter 4, he had said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. What does that mean? Just as a fisherman's life is spent catching fish with a net or with a hook, bringing them into the boat, a fisher of men catches or draws men and women and children into the kingdom of God by the casting out of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel into the world. And since the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, the Bible teaches, in other words, God does not change his mind about his calling on our lives, nor does he take away the gifts that he gives us to accomplish that calling, it was not in his will for them to return to their old life and to their old occupation of fishing. They immediately got into the boat. They fished all night, night being the time for fishing on the Sea of Galilee to this day. The trips to Israel will stay in a hotel that's right on the Sea of Galilee. And if you typically everyone's still dealing with jet lag at that part in the trip. So waking up anywhere from one in the morning to three in the morning. And if you open up the windows and look outside or go take a walk, you can see the boats that are still out there fishing to this day. And so 
Nothing extraordinary about that. So they go out fishing at night and they caught nothing. All of the hard work, just utterly fruitless. Again, the Lord didn't allow them to be successful outside of his calling and his plan for their lives. Representing the fact that temptation to abandon God's calling and his purpose for our lives can look appealing for the moment, as I've said, but ultimately it ends in a very empty and spiritually fruitless life. Jesus poses a question to them in verse 5 after they finished this entire night of fishing and catching nothing. He said, children, do you have any food? They're about 100 yards offshore at this point, so he's got to shout that out uh, to them. And uh, they don't know that it's Jesus yet. It's probably still, uh, you know, the sun's just beginning to peak over the mountains there around the Sea of Galilee. And so he asks them the hardest question that can be asked of a fisherman after he has fished all night long and caught nothing. Children, do you have any food? Did you catch anything? And so they probably thought that he was either an early riser, but more likely that he was Probably one of uh, the managers from the fish market in Tiberias or Capernaum or one of the cities along the Sea of Galilee. That he was out there early uh, walking along the Sea of Galilee and calling out to any fishermen that night about what kind of fish they would have so that he could then purchase the fish and sell them in the market. And so this probably wouldn't have been uh, extraordinary. And then they responded with what has to be the hardest word for any fisherman to say in response to that question. And they answered him, no, there in verse 5. Now, in contrast to all of that, in verses 6 through 14, we notice the fruitfulness of the Christ-directed life. Jesus proceeded then to take charge of directing their lives once again at this point, and he gave them, in verse 6, the single worst piece of fishing advice in the history of fishing. He told them to cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Your problem is you've been fishing off the wrong side of the boat all night. Now, they don't know it's Jesus. This is like a wise guy on the shore. And so they they had to look at one another and say, who is this? Like the reason we didn't catch fish tonight was because we were fishing off the wrong side of the boat. Now, I, I'm sure it's true of, of professional fishermen, but I think it's true of almost all fishermen. Uh, after a night like this, they're uh, not really open to uh, advice or counsel, and probably typically not from someone who is on the shore at the moment, the land lover. Now, the result, they... In their humbled condition, uh, they obeyed him there in verse 6. They cast the net as he had told them to, and now they're not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. I mean, the net is so full, they can't even, all of them on the boat, get the thing pulled in. Jesus had a perfect knowledge of where the fish were in relationship to Uh, to that boat in that lake. And, of course, that's the kind of knowledge he has about all of life. Now, John, he's in the boat. He immediately recognizes this to be Jesus. 
And so it's like, okay, wait a second. The Rolodex, let's head through the Rolodex here. We've seen this before. Earlier in Luke's gospel, I believe it's chapter 5, where Jesus, the multitude was so great around him early in his ministry that he was being crowded right on the very same Sea of Galilee. The crowd was so great and so wanting to get close to him and hear to him, he's being virtually pushed into the water. So he asked Peter if he could use his boat and just cast off a little bit from the shore, and then he could speak to a larger group of people and be heard. And so he did. Uh, Peter accommodated him. And then because uh, God will not be a debtor to anyone, Jesus said, listen, uh, go out now and and, uh, cast out your net and you'll get a net full of fish as kind of a payment for all of this. Peter said, well, you know, listen, you're a good preacher and everything like that, but we know fishing And uh, this is the wrong time of the day to fish in the Sea of Galilee. Nevertheless, at your word. So he's just covering himself. This is going to be a bomb. You're going to look really bad in front of everybody because there's just not going to be any fish near the surface at this time of the day. Your word will put put in the net. Puts in the net. And again, they can barely get the fish into uh, the, the, uh, the boat. And if you think I'm being hard on Peter in terms of what, it was the intimation behind his response to Jesus when the fish are, are loaded into the boat. G- Peter comes to Jesus, falls down before him and, and says, you know, forgive me for I'm a sinful man. So he's repenting of his treatment of Jesus. So John looks at this and he and he recognizes immediately uh, we've been through this before. That's the Lord that's on the shore there. And then uh, and, and and so Peter, he can't even wait to get the boat to the shore. So he puts on his uh, outer robe. They would wear two garments. They would have an inner garment that was much like a robe. And then they would have an outer robe. And he had taken off the outer one for the work of the of the night. But he put that on. Then he dove into the water and he swam to shore. Again, he's a man of action. And uh, but at this point, the other six disciples are learning about him because they don't follow him at this. They're not going to follow him swimming to the shore. Someone's got to get those fish to the shore. And so that's what they did there in verse eight. And as soon as they came to land, verse nine, they saw a fire of coals there, fish laid on it, bread. Jesus had already cooked breakfast. Now you think about his attention to detail. It's a servant. Even following his resurrection. The Bible says he's going to serve us in heaven. Here he is. I mean, you can imagine coming in. There's a fire going. He's done all that. The fish are just cooking right there. The bread. You got the protein. You got the carbs. Your whole thing. They're probably starving after working all night and all. And, and so he's got everything ready for them. And then Jesus called them in verse 10 to bring some of the fish that they had caught. And he's just kind of graciously inviting them to contribute, you know, their catch to what he's doing here. And, and in order to do that, verse 11, Peter dragged the net to land, 153 fish, and yet the net wasn't broken. Gives us an idea of his strength. He was able to do that. So that was a big old catch. And we're told in the, in the text here that these were very large fish. And so normally, under normal circumstances, that size of a catch, just to throw one net out onto the water, pull it in, catch 153 fish, 
it put the nets in jeopardy of, of breaking here, and yet it hadn't been broken. And I think the number of, it's funny, sometimes you read the commentaries on this stuff, and historically how people have tried to interpret the 153. You know, the 100 is, speaks of the nation of Israel, and 50 speaks of the Gentile nation, and 3 speaks of the Trinity, or 10 speaks of, and then the 15 times the 3, and then you get the uh, pi equals square, and the whole, and the, all the deal. Listen, it's just 153 fish. It was just a lot of fish. And, and they're almost broke the net. And, and the 153 lets us know that, I mean, this is it's a historical event. I mean, these are the details of a historical uh, event. And Jesus then, in verses 12 and 13, he invited them to breakfast. And, uh, they, and then proceeded to serve them that breakfast. Everybody knew it was the Lord, but nobody said anything. And, and, and maybe they didn't say anything out of the awkwardness of taking their life back under their control from what Jesus had told them to do, to go to the Galilee and wait for them and, uh, and, and going back fishing. And we're told in verse 14 that this was the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The first time in that, <clears throat> that room in Jerusalem on the evening of his resurrection, the second time a week later the following Sunday with Thomas and then here for a third time, and he would meet with them and others many times before he would ascend to the Father. Now, allow me a couple of applications of this passage this morning before we close. Clearly, this incident between Jesus and his disciples is not supremely about fish or about fishing, because in the end, the fish are virtually ignored here. Jesus goes on in the remainder of the chapter to speak to Peter specifically, but to all of the disciples concerning Christian service. That's what this is all about, what he's communicating to them. Jesus is teaching them a, and us a larger lesson about ministry, about service to the Lord, and specifically about the uniquely Christian work of drawing people into God's kingdom through the gospel. And the two great points that he's driving home uh, to them here is the fruitlessness of the self-directed life and the fruitfulness of the Christ-directed life. The fruitlessness of the self-directed life because each one of us as Christians, the Bible teaches, has a call upon our lives. We have a call upon our lives that goes beyond uh, eating and sleeping and, and doing the daily physical things of life. Each one of us has a spiritual purpose where every one of our lives, each of our lives, is somehow as Christians to be involved in the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world. Each of our lives is somehow to be involved the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world by people coming to hear the gospel, becoming Christians, and then being discipled in their walk with the Lord. And, and, and so this is all of us as Christians are called to have a place in this some, somewhere. 
Remember, Jesus had spoken to these same disciples and he had given them a message of forgiveness to carry out into the world. He had imparted the Holy Spirit to them for that purpose. Now, some of the examples of uh, of the way that our lives can be used for the expansion of the gospel. Of course, a lot of that happens within the local church where you have elders, you have deacons, you have board members who have the gift of administration, you have ushers, you have greeters, you have Bible study teachers, you have worship leaders, you have children's church servants, you have um, evangelism that's going on, you have prayer that's going on, you have so many things that are happening behind the scenes that people are doing that make everything else work. And so some of these things that we do for the advancement of Uh, The kingdom of God, the advancement of the gospel, some of them are very, very public. Some of them are very, very uh, kind of quiet places that people serve. Missionaries certainly fall into that category where God sends them into another part of the world to make disciples. But it's not just the missionaries uh, that are involved in missions. Uh, They do the going, but you always have to have a group that are doing the sending. Uh, all the missionaries that go out from our group, we use a book called Serving as Senders as a model. And there's a, there's a team that's behind back in the, in the United States that is taking care of an awful lot of things for them so they can focus on what they're doing out in the mission field. So there's a lot of ways to be involved in missions and, and then uh, not to say nothing of uh, supporting missionaries. Sometimes we can, God can have a call on our life to serve him in a parachurch organization. Locally, that might be uh, as an example. There are many examples, but that might be uh, volunteering at the Modesto Gospel Mission in uh, preaching the word there or serving there or discipling there. All the needs that they have or being a part of the Modesto Pregnancy Center is another uh, kind of uh, parachurch ministry kind of opportunity in the community. It can mean being directed by God to volunteer in our community. But it isn't just volunteering someplace in the community and doing it the way that everybody else would do it. It's volunteering with the idea of, Lord, I want people to see my good works and to glorify my Father who is in heaven. So there's, that's the motivation. It's spiritual service. This isn't just about this and this and physically this happening and that happening. I am obeying God and doing this thing in, with the desire that people will come into contact with Christ through my life. You see that all the time. You go to the hospitals around the community and you see these volunteers that are at these uh, tables, information counters throughout the hospital that we get information from. It's a great place for a Christian to serve as well. Sometimes it can occur in the area of coaching where someone will coach a a women's team or a, a men's team or a boys team or a girls team. And again, it's not just going to make them the best athletes or to get the most out of them, though certainly a coach will want to do that. But here is a Christian coach where a Christian coach looks and says, I want to be a spiritual influence in the life of these youth or in the life 
of these children. I want them to come into contact with Christ uh, through my life. I want to have an opportunity to share with them. Sometimes it can happen in the area of mentoring at schools or elsewhere in the community where there is that same attitude. It can mean adopting. God can call someone to adopt. I'm not advocating anybody do that today because that's quite a step to take. It can mean taking in children who into foster out of, uh, as a foster home. And uh, and bringing them in. But the prayer is, Lord, we want them to see normal. We want them to see your normal. We want them to see the body, the love of Christ, the health, the beauty of the Christian life. We want them to come to know you. We want them to be around prayer. We want them to have a safe environment to spend whatever time we have them in our family with. And these are the kind of things that God can lead Christians to do. And it all constitutes uh, the advancement of the kingdom of God. Sometimes it can be owning a business where somebody looks and says, well, I, I can't really teach a Bible study because the fact of the matter is by the time I run this business and get up in the morning, do this thing, cover this, do all, come home and, and have something to eat and move on to the next day and all that. There's no room for anything else that can be legitimate. But where a person looks and says, this business is God's business and I run it not supremely for the bottom line that it would make this much for me in the course of a year or this or that or it would bring glory to me, but God, that it would bring glory to you. It would be one more opportunity that you have in this community to show the wisdom of following you. And that can be Christian service in an individual person's life. Related to our employment, our uh, what's called secular employment, but there's no secular employment for us as Christians because what we do, we do as unto the Lord. So I'm not saying that you have to. If you sit here today and you say, "Well, by the time I commute, I, I commute an hour and 45 minutes into my job in the Bay Area, do that job, commute back here, and then try and get six and a half hours of sleep." Uh, each night so I can crash during the weekend and all, and now you're laying a trip on me to do something else. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying to be directed by the Lord. Every Christian ought to be able to look and say, this is what I am doing in obedience to God for the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. And a person can be in that kind of a place and say, I do my job as under the Lord. I'm making an impact where I am, probably not able to share the Gospels. Certainly I'm not on company time. It, 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 most places where a person would work, but there is that way. You know, when I worked for the phone company, you know, it wasn't a place where, you, you know, I mean, they have these rules and these laws and these different kinds of things and stuff. And so you, you, you abide by and it's the company's time and that kind of thing. But there was hardly anyone that I worked with that over the course of the years didn't ultimately broach the subject uh, or, or or opened up a door that was so big that I couldn't. I would have been disobedient not to say something. It might have been a half a sentence. It might have been a sentence. It might have been a 10 minute conversation before work or after work or on the lunch break as we worked a lot together in crews. And, and so, but just however the Lord uh, would, would do that. And someone can have the gift of administration 
from the Lord. And that's a that's a calling. That's a gifting. Not everybody can administrate something. And so God may lead that person to become a part of a Christian organization in town and help it run uh, effectively in the community. Or that person might then run for political office in the community in order to then be an influence for Christ and righteousness within the community. And so there's so many different kinds of things that happen within the church, without the church, on and on and on we could go. But the main thing is, is that have I sought the Lord on, Lord, how is your work to be advanced through my life, and then do I know what that is? And then am I obeying whatever that is that he's called me to do? Like the apostles, though, there is a very, very real temptation that occurs sooner or later to abandon that calling, to abandon God's will for our lives, and then return to a life of self-will. We just hit a place and you say, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too hard. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to endure the sacrifice the Christian service means to my life, week in and week out and year in and year out. Or we're tired of laying down our lives for the betterment of others, and we just want to focus on ourselves more, just want to lick our wounds a little bit. Or some recent disappointment, some shattered expectation, some confusion, some danger has us seeking protection and the safety of so-called safety of the self-willed life. Or there's just a desire to no longer be in the battle. I don't want to fight it anymore. I don't want to stand alone in this place, in this apartment complex, in this neighborhood, in this workplace. In this family, I just want to be a nobody and an anybody. I just want to go with the flow like everybody else gets to. I'm just tired of it. I don't want to be a a part of it. I don't want to be in the battle. I don't want to swim against the flow of the world anymore. I don't want to stand out anymore. I just want to fit in. I just want a normal, regular life like I see all my unbelieving neighbors have. And sometimes it's just a desire for rest from spiritual warfare or rest from the life of faith, rest from all of the stretching that occurs by being faithful to God's calling upon our lives. All that God does, and he can do some very, very hard things to conform us into the image of Christ. And a person can look and say in the same way that on an athletic team, somebody can look and say to a coach, I'm done, you're too hard, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. No matter what you're making me into, I want out. The same thing can happen in the body of Christ as God pushes us into Christ-likeness in the way that Christian service does that in our lives. The problem with that is, what if everybody does it? Who's going to be left in the world to serve as fishers of men? And how, I think about how huge the servant pool that would be available to the Lord in this big wide world if 
for each new one that came in the front door of Christian service, there wasn't two or three slipping out the back door of Christian service at the same time, retiring on their own, quitting on their own, under self-will and self-protection. Again, the Bible says that the callings and the giftings of God are without repentance. In other words, they don't end. This calling that we have, this gifting that we have, it's a for-life calling that goes against the culture where so much of what we do aims for retirement. We aim at retirement in virtually every area of our lives. But there's not a retirement to Christian service unless health or something like that drives us out. There can be a lessening because we can't do as much at 60 or 70 that we were able to do at 20 or 30. But the calling never stops. And sometimes we become, we have such seasoning with the Lord. The Lord has invested such long decades in our lives that are so valuable for influence and fruitfulness, and that we can pull ourselves out of what is supposed to be a life of service. I think it's very easy to begin our Christian lives with the uh, excitement and with faith and expectation, just the same way that these disciples did, only over time to begin to view Serving the Lord is kind of an optional thing. And so then we, when that happens, we return to the old pursuits. We return to the old life. We abandon God's calling and his purposes for our lives. Yes, we're absolutely saved. We're on our way to heaven. But we're content to just live out our three score and ten in peace and quiet. We say we'll leave the advancement of the kingdom of God to others. And not realizing that by comparison with God's will and with God's purposes, we've settled into a life that is empty and meaningless and fruitless spiritually, perfectly encapsulated by what we see here, and that is empty nets. For all of the hardship and all of the sacrifices and all of the difficulty and all of the faith involved in staying true to God's call upon our lives, there isn't a richer or a fuller or more abundant life that a person can possibly live. There's an intimacy that is found with God there that we would not otherwise know apart from that sacrifice and that difficulty. There's a knowledge and a relationship with God that is discovered there and that we grow in there that cannot be discovered and be a part of our lives apart from the sacrifice of being faithful to God's call upon our lives. Again, I've walked with the Lord for 31 years. And I think to myself, as I think back all the way back to those early years, and I think about how few Christians I run into that are still walking enthusiastically with the Lord after 31 years, you run into them and they're hesitant to have a spiritual discussion with you. You say, praise the Lord. Isn't God great? Isn't he amazing? <laughs> and all these things that are just a part 
of your walk with the Lord. And it's like talking to a wall. They know nothing of it in their own life currently. They did because we all walked with the Lord together and served the Lord together. But now it's it, 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 it's, it's something that's very past tense in their life. And then not only as it relates to and, and the wonderful thing about it is that Every once in a while, when you run into someone who is still walking, still living for God, still growing in their relationship with the Lord after decades, it's like you have come into contact with the most wonderful, fresh stream of of mountain water. It's so wonderful to run into that kind of a person. It happens, but not nearly enough. And then I think to myself, Fewer still are the people that remain serving the Lord and faithful to his calling all the way to the end. The overwhelming majority quit somewhere along the way. They just hang it up. They just do exactly what the disciples are doing here. That's it. It's too hard. I don't want. What about me? What about my selfishness? What about my plans? What about my goals? What about my dreams? What about my expectations? And then one day, some morning, some noon, some night, some time, there's a place where that just gets taken and the will of God and the purposes of God for our lives in Christian service gets laid over here and in the pursuit of this other thing. Now, I have no intention. This is the kind of passage that... If we weren't going straight through the life of Christ, I probably would skip it. I mean, one one part of me would want to. But it does something important in our lives. That's why it's in the Bible. And to allow it to really search our lives. In not a condemning way. I have no interest in condemning people or guilting people into service or anything like that. But the Bible is the Bible. And to just think, maybe in a room like this, How much gifting has been lost? How much calling? How much that has been trusted by God of the Holy Spirit into human lives has just been completely moved off from a place of God's use? Where once you taught Bible studies... Once you prayed with people, once you did this, once you did that, once you did this, and then some point in time in life, and I exhort myself, where I got to a place and I thought, no, I'm not willing to do that anymore. And to realize, if everyone did that, then how is the kingdom of God going to be advanced? The temptation is great for all of us. That's why this passage is in the Bible. If it could be so great to the disciples who saw Jesus face to face before his resurrection and following his resurrection, then how much more related to our own lives? It's there and it's a danger to God's work. And so for that reason, it's in the Bible. And for that reason, we need to be reminded of it. And perhaps the word of God this morning would encourage and even exhort some of us that it's time to return to that calling, to that gifting, to realize that it isn't an option to do it or not do it. It's a lifetime gifting. It's a lifetime calling. 
that we need to be faithful to. How do I do it? I just come to the Lord and I say, Lord, I acknowledge your call on my life. I know what it is. And I walked away from it. And I freshly surrender my life to you this morning. And I return to this and you show me now where this gifting and calling is to be directed. And he will. And if we sit here this morning and someone says, I don't have the slightest idea what my gifting or my calling is. Ask him and he'll show you. And then in the meantime, fill a need someplace while you're waiting for him to to show you the big picture and enjoy the fellowship with God that comes with serving him. Like the old poster that I saw in that pastor's office one time, God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And Jesus was bringing these disciples back to that. And where it's needed in our lives this morning, may he use this passage to do the same. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Well, you don't leave a rock unturned. It just, by the time we head through it, it touches on everything. And we're thankful for that, Lord. Thankful for your instruction. Thank you for rescuing the gifting and the calling in these men 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would perform that same rescue in any heart and any life that needs that to occur today. We love you, Jesus. We really do want to be found right in the place that you've called us to be when we see you face to face. And so, Lord, continue to use this passage in our lives today and then, Lord, in future days when that the strength of that desire for self-protection and self-preservation becomes so great that we're tempted in this way that you would use this passage to protect us, Lord, with an even greater strength. And we look to you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.